I want us to ask the question, first of all, why we are taking up this study at all. What, what's the point of this? Where, where are we going? What do we want to accomplish? Why are we studying the image of God in man? We're not studying it because it's something that we fail to talk about. Because I don't think we really fail to talk about the image of God in man. In our Bible-believing circles, whenever we talk about origins, or if we have a discussion concerning abortion or some such thing, it always, if the, if the discussion is helpful and if the discussion is biblical, then we talk about, inevitably, the image of God in man. So we talk about it when it comes to origins, and maybe slightly less often, we will also talk about his image in us being defaced, but not completely lost by the fall. I think where we fall short is we just stop right there. We stop it with the discussion of creation and the fall and how still the image of God is continued in us, even though it has been defiled. But the, where we fall short is we don't continue on. We don't continue to explore what really is a central theme in the Scriptures. And so, I don't think what we're doing here is so much a topical series as much as it is a thematic series. We're looking at this theme that God unfolds through the, the progress, the process of His revelation. As we go through the Scriptures, this central strand of the Bible is being unfolded by the Lord, the image of God in man. So rather than stopping with our creation as His image bearers or our corruption in the fall, we must go on to Christ. To Christ. Because it's in Jesus where we find the ultimate meaning of the image of God. We find the ultimate significance in Him. The ultimate meaning of the image of God is found in the person of the Son of God. And then, we need to go further um, in the course of Revelation, God's written Revelation. And I'm giving you a preview of next week now. We need to go on and see that being made in the image of God actually has much more to do with our new creation in Christ than the first creation. Being made in God's image is our beginning, but more, it's where we are ultimately heading. It's what we will be at last when we have finally arrived. So, why are we studying this? Well, for one, it's for our convictions. It's to become firmly established in what God would have us to have as a conviction. But by conviction, exaltation. Being convinced in our minds and grasping with our hearts, this is to turn into worship. The, the, the ultimate purpose is so that we would be awestruck again at the greatness and the glory of our God and what He has done. This is all about boasting in Him. That's where we want to go. And if you don't get past conviction to worship, then... It's all for naught. It must turn to worship of the Lord. So let me, uh, let me tell you how I'm going to work our way through this sermon today, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help. 
First of all, I, I want us to do a quick recap of what we covered last week in creation. Very quick. And then I want us to focus in on the fall. And I want us to narrow in on one consequence of the fall that, well, it's right downstream from the first rebellion. I want us to narrow in on this thing that the Bible forbids in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, where God says, do not make any carved images for yourself, any likeness of in heaven above or earth beneath and so on. I want us to narrow in on that. And I want us to understand we might think, well, that's not really relevant. We don't do that anymore. We're not bowing down, you know, to images of wood and stone. But I want us to see the relevance of that. And more, I want us to see how revolting that is. Because of Jesus. I want us to understand that sin in light of Christ. And I want us to exalt in Christ together. I want Christ to be magnified. So we'll talk about image making. But this is because of Jesus we're talking about it. I want us to just glory in Christ again and worship Him. And like I said a moment ago, be be awestruck again by His glory. So that's where we're going in this sermon. Let's bow our heads and let's bow our hearts in prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Father, would you please give to us your Holy Spirit? Lord, we want to see with spiritual eyes. We want to hear. We want to be tuned in spiritually. Lord, we want to receive Your truth in our hearts down deep where it will actually take root and produce fruit for Your kingdom. That's what we want. That's what we're here for. And so we're asking You, Lord, that You would give to us the fullness of Your Spirit. We have Your Spirit. We praise You for that. We ask that You would fill us. Father, we want to obey You. We want our response to You to be worship, pleasing, glorifying to You so that we may exalt in Your Son. Please give to us Your Holy Spirit. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start with creation. This is where we begin in the discussion of the image of God in man. In the Bible... The one written word of the one true God. God reveals that we human beings are His special creation with a value and a purpose above the rest of creation because we were made uniquely in the image of God. Unlike the rest of creation, we were made uniquely in the image of God to uniquely reflect His glory and represent Him in the world. Being made in His image means that we are His representatives, His vice-regents, His stewards. We have authority and dominion from God over the creation. We are, again, we are His stewards. But we fell. Or to be more accurate, we rebelled against the God who made us. And that came with all of the, the, the fatal consequences of that that God had warned Adam and Eve so clearly of. In the day that you eat of the fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And they did. The earth was bound to corruption. They began the physical descent into death and they immediately spiritually died, became slaves of sin. And this image of God 
which separates us from creation, puts us above the rest of creation, though it continues, has been defaced and defiled. And one of the consequences, one of the sins right downstream from that rebellion, it's it's such a twisted irony. Think of this. We who were made in the image of God to represent Him, love to make images of God that would represent Him. Let me say that again, because it's so backwards and twisted and such a perversion of God's creation. We who were made in God's image to uniquely represent Him, love to make images of God that would represent Him. And we might think, does that is that really so bad? What is the, what's the big deal about that? But this is a sin right downstream from the sin of Adam and Eve because what we are simply trying to do, and we'll talk a little bit more about what all of this means and how revolting the sin is, we're trying to bring God down to our level and step over Him. It's just exactly really what Adam and Eve did at the heart of it. We're trying to supplant God with ourselves. We want power and we want control. And the thought is, if we can make an image of God, then we have domesticated Him. We have power and control and we have created something that will serve us instead of the other way around. So this is what the Bible condemns and forbids in the Ten Commandments. Here are the first two commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And second, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. Now again, if God made us in His image, is it so bad that we make images of Him? And for a slew of reasons, it is. And let me give you a a slight, a little bit of a preview here, and I'll probably repeat, if I remember, I'll repeat this thought. There has only ever been one image upon the earth that has not misrepresented God. And He was not made. I want to take you to Deuteronomy. Uh, you don't have to turn there because I don't think we'll have the time. But here's, here's the second commandment again, but repeated in Deuteronomy. The second commandment forbids image making. So th- listen to these words. In fact, God gives a reason for forbidding this sin. He says, therefore, Watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, and on and on it goes, forbidding making images of fish or birds or any creeping thing. He says, watch yourselves very carefully. Do not, do not dare do this. Now, what was the issue? The issue was not carving an animal that would represent an animal. In fact, on my parents' fireplace mantle, they have a carved fox that my, my grandfather made. He died about 30 years ago. 
And is that what the Bible is forbidding? No. It's not making a carved image, male, female, human person, or an animal or whatever, that would represent a human or an animal, but it's making a carved image that would represent God. Why? Three reasons. Because, first of all, He is God whom no one has seen or can see. He is the invisible, infinite, and uncreated God. What are images? Images are obviously visible, and they're finite, and they are the projections, projections of those who create them. So any image that we make of God is going to automatically misrepresent Him, being a projection of our hearts and not His. Second, because creations are automatically beneath their creators. This is why we should never make an image that would represent the invisible God. Because creations are automatically beneath their creators. As Paul said, and I used this verse last week, as Paul said, the potter has rights over the clay. Right? The potter has rights over the clay. So if we are the potter, or the carver, so to speak, and the clay is this image of God, who has rights over who? Who has power over who? Who has value over who? The, the Creator has the value. The Creator has the power. And so an image of God that we would make would not only be beneath Him, but as our creation, the image would be beneath us. And that's the goal of idolatry. That's the goal of image-making of God. It is to domesticate God. It is to have power and control over the God that you make. And you might think, how is this relevant? Again, we're, we don't do this, do we not? And I would bring up the shack, the book, and the movie in which God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, invisible God, is portrayed in human form. This is a violation of the second commandment. And so yes, this has tremendous relevance to us. I said I'd give you three reasons. This is the third. Number one is God is invisible and infinite and uncreated. Therefore, any image of Him is going to be a projection of us and a misrepresentation of Him. And the second thing is the creation is automatically beneath the Creator. But here's the third thing. The thing above all that makes image-making revolting it's because of Jesus. It's because of Christ. Let me take you back to Genesis 5. We looked at this passage, first three verses of Genesis 5 last week. God created man. Genesis 5 says, God created man in his likeness, male and female, and named them man. And then it says, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So here, right away, what are, what are we seeing? Let's just sum this up. The son is the image of the father. The son is the image of the father. And what we have here in creation, and what we have here in Genesis 5 in these words, is 
It's an analogy. It's an analogy of what God has done, of rather, who God is. As Seth, the son, is the image of Adam, his father, so there is an eternal divine son who is the image of the father. And as much as we are made in the image of God and reflect his glory, there is one eternally begotten, not made, who is not just the reflection of the glory of God. Ryan actually referred to these verses in Sunday school this morning. But more than the reflection of the glory of God, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews chapter 1. If Maybe if the contrast would help with an illustration, it's, just, it's like the moon and the sun. When we look upon the moon at night, we see light, but it's not its own light. That light we see is the reflection of the sun. So we're like the moon. We are reflections of the glory of God. And Jesus, in that sense, is like the sun in that He is the radiance of the glory of God. So why must we never portray God with an image? Because of the Son of God. There has only ever been one image on the earth, one image of God on the earth that did not misrepresent Him. And He was not made. It is Jesus, the Son of God. He is the eternal image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of His nature. So Isaiah chapter 40, you're there, I hope. Look down at verses 18 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains, casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. I want you to understand the nature of the Bible. New Testament and Old. Do you see Do you see who the Lord is talking about? He is talking about Himself because He is talking about His Son. That's the Bible. That's not only that passage, that's the whole Bible. The Lord is talking about Himself by His Spirit because He is talking about His Son. 
That's what it means that Jesus is the Word of God. The image of the invisible God. He is God's revelation. So, for the rest of the time remaining, we're just, we're going to glory in Jesus. I, and I hope, I, I pray that your heart is prepared and just the thought of that will stir you up and make you to anticipate on, in your heart anyway, on the edge of your seat. Let's think for a moment, let's make a comparison between us created in the image of God, the image of God in man, and the image of God being Jesus. Think about what God does through human beings. And when you think about it, it, it's an astounding thing what all God does through us. That's part of what it means to be made in His image, that He does so much through us. Through us, God tends and He keeps the earth. He beautifies it and He multiplies His creation through the work of human beings. So again, it's really astounding how much God does through us. But what God does through us pales in comparison to what God does through His Son. What does God do through His Son? Everything. Everything that God does, He does through His Son. Let me, let's highlight four things. Here, here are the chief things in all of history. What, what would the chief things be? If we, if we gave four things, what would we say are the, the main highlights through history of the work of God? Well, of course, you start number one with creation. And then second, you would go to salvation. And then third, you talk about the last day and the resurrection and the judgment of the last day. And then wouldn't you speak forth of His eternal reign at last over all things, making all new? All of that, it's through Christ. So first of all, consider our origins. How did God create the world? These verses should be memorized. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, if you would look down in your Bibles, hope you're still open there, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, every every realm, the, the, the seen realm, of the universe and the unseen, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. How did God create? He created through His Son. Consider our salvation. Look back at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Question, how does God redeem? How does He reconcile? 
It says, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Actually, go back a verse to verse 18. It says, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Do you see, did you notice the one word in particular? It says he is the firstborn. And in both passages we read for creation and salvation, it says Jesus is the firstborn, which is not referring to his origin as though he came into being. The stress is on his headship and his authority and his rule overall. He is the firstborn, the head of the first creation, And He is the firstborn, the head of the new creation. Through Him, God made all things. And through Him, God makes all things new. Consider third, the end of the age. We have creation, salvation, the end of the age. How will God raise up and how will God judge on the last day? I wish I could read more verses from John 5. If you want to better understand the nature of the triune God, meditate long and meditate deep on John 5. It is mind-blowing, really. This is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father... Now notice these words. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And I'm going to bring up the truth of that later. That's why I wanted you to concentrate on it. Then it says, And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And I'm reading from John 5, verses 26 to 28. Earlier, I think it's verse 22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one He has given all judgment to the Son. And there's there's the truth of it. How does God judge in the end? It's through Jesus, His Son. And then fourth, consider His everlasting reign in the eternal future. How will God rule over all? Here's a familiar passage which has been read many, many times from this pulpit. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And I could go, okay, so there's the four things, the, the chief things in, in history and, and beyond the history of our age. We could go on and on and on, and I will a little bit more, because I, you know, you could ask the question, okay, there's the main things. We see God does the main things through His Son, you know, the beginning, the end, all that, and maybe, you know, the, the crux, the very center, but what about the middle? What about the rest of it? Back in Colossians, chapter 1, verse 17. Look at that. 
It says, He is before all things. Speaking of Jesus, and in Him all things hold together. All things hold together in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, another passage. You want to understand the, the greatness and the glory of Jesus. You must know Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. And while you're at it, study the rest of the book too. But in Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It says, God, through Jesus, created all things, and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the Creator. He is the Sustainer. And as is spelled out in Hebrews and Daniel 7, which I just read, He is the Heir of all things. So when Jesus at last says in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, we should think by the time we get there, yes, this isn't new information. I can see this all over the Scriptures. He is the beginning. He is the middle. He is the end. From creating to sustaining the creation to judging the rebellious and delivering the rebellious to redeeming, making all things new, ruling over all, and everything in between, all God does, He does through His Son. Is there a revelation from God? Yes. In His Son. Is there a divine work, a divine accomplishment? There wouldn't be, except for the Son. Does God have a plan? Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1? I'd like you to see this one. Ephesians 1, 8 to 10. Question. Does God have a plan? Does He have a plan? We know He does. The Bible says, as we're going to see, the plan of God is through the Son revealed and with the Son concerned. And I know that's kind of a boring way to say things and a little maybe academic sounding, but uh, I'll put it in a few different ways. The plan from God is through His Son revealed and with His Son concerned. So it says in Ephesians chapter 1, it says in verse 8, that He lavished upon us His grace in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So does God have a plan? Does He have a purpose? He does. It's here called the mystery of His will. It's called His plan for the fullness of time. How does God reveal it? Through Jesus. It says, He set it forth in Christ. The plan of God is revealed through His Son. So what is it? What is the plan? What's the mystery of His will? What is His plan for the fullness of time? Look at the end of verse 10. To unite all things in Him. And who is the Him? What is the last name mentioned? What is that pronoun him referring to? It's the last name. Christ. 
His plan is to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Everything in heaven and on earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So do you see this? Let me put it a different way than the way I put it a moment ago. The plan of God is through the Son seen. And the plan of God is to see the Son supreme. The plan of God is through the Son seen, and it is to see the Son supreme. It's revealed through Jesus, and it concerns Jesus. Let me put it this way. It is like God pulls back the curtain on the mystery of His will. What is it? We're on the edge of our seat. We're all waiting. And He pulls it back in Christ. And the curtain pulled back in Christ, it's Christ center stage. Jesus pulls back the curtain, and Jesus is center stage. He is the medium of God's message, and He is the message. Praise to His name. That's Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And all of His people, the cry of their heart is, Amen. Amen. In John 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. And so, you, hey, do you wonder ever, or do you hear the, the discussion ever about what about these appearances of God in the Old Testament? Like the captain of the Lord's host to Joshua, or the angel of the Lord to Moses in the burning, non-burnt bush, or the, the man with whom Jacob wrestled, whose name Jacob asked and he wasn't allowed to know. Who is this? Who is this? I mean, it's so clear to me because of the weight of all of Scripture. Of course it's Christ. There's no debate in my mind. I would bet everything I have that this is the answer to that question. It's Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. There is no other. An angel is not the image of the invisible God. Jesus is. Christ is. Christ alone. So it says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He is God without beginning, the from everlasting to everlasting image of the Father. Remember I, I told you a little while ago from John 5 to keep the words in mind where it says, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. So this is, this might sound a, a little bit strange, but I'm going to say this a number of ways as I go. So, But this is the truth of the Bible. The Son is the eternal generation of the Father. The eternal generation from the Father and the eternal revelation of the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And I know that is difficult to understand. It's mind-boggling, and we can't wrap our minds around it. So in John 14, we actually have, we have a really good illustration of what this means. You remember Philip? Okay, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going away. 
And the disciples, they began to panic. How could you go? How could you leave us? Philip said, Jesus, if we're going to, to bear up under this, if we're going to be sustained, he said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. He said, that will be enough. That will sustain us. And Jesus said to him, John 14, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So do you see? You do not look past Jesus for God. You don't look around Him to see God. You don't even look through Him to see God. You look upon Jesus and you see God. Do you want to see? And do you want to know for yourself the true nature of God? Then as we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. All our questions about the nature and the will of God are answered in Christ. So let me bring up, I am coming to a a close in case you're worried or your stomach's starting to rumble. But I want to give you six questions that are commonly asked about the nature of God. And this was actually brought up in Sunday school. Uh, Some people think that the Jesus of the New Testament is fundamentally at odds with the God of the Old Testament. And that started very early on. There was this heretic by the name of Marcion, very early church history, who said, Jesus and God are different. The Old Testament is better, I mean the New Testament is better than the Old. And we have two different gods happening here. So here, all of the, the questions about the nature and the will of God are answered in Christ. Here's one of the big questions of life. Is God even knowable? Or is he some mysterious riddle because he's detached and distant from his creation? Your answer is Jesus, the image of God. Is God some kind of, this is some pretty rough stuff in the Old Testament. Is God some kind of genocidal maniac, a despot, a a slave driver? Is Jesus like this? That's the answer. Can God be bought? Will the rich get in because they can buy him off? And will the poor be out? Could Jesus be bought? That's the answer. Is God calloused or compassionate? Is he calloused and hard-hearted or is he a comforter? What is Jesus like? That's the answer. Is God patient? This is, this is a question believers ask. Is he patient with me? Is he long suffering or has he really had it up to here with me by now? Because I have so royally messed up. Is he just, does he have this simmering agitation with me? Tell me what you see in Jesus. That's the answer. Is God holy and just and good? Or is he tainted with compromise? What is Jesus? What is God like? What is Jesus like? That's your answer. 
What is God unlike? What is Jesus unlike? That is the answer. Where do I go to see God and to hear God and to know God? You go to Jesus. Because there is no God different from Jesus. There is no God different from Jesus. Jesus is all the glory of God. He is the revelation. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of His nature. Can you see? Do you understand? Are you taking this to heart? Is it turning into worship? Are you awestruck at who Christ is? He is the eternal generation from the Father and the eternal revelation of the Father. So, let me say that in a few different ways with pictures and maybe it'll help. Listen, Jesus is all the shining of the Father and He is the light. He is all the Father's rays come down so we may see. And He is the forever, forever burning, infinite Son. He is all the Father's outpouring. All the Father's outpouring is Jesus. And Jesus is the fullness and the fountain. He is all the streams from the Father. Think of a river. He is all the streams of the Father. And He is the source. As the Nicene Creed so helpfully said about 1,700 years ago or so, He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is God's Son and He is God. All that we will ever see and know and have of God is seen and known and had in Jesus. He is the Word. In Him we hear God. He is the image. In Him we see God. So that when you arrive in glory at last, you will not look past Jesus to see God. Jesus, step out of the way. Step out so we can see God. You don't look past Him to see God. You don't look around Him to see the glory of God. You don't even look through Him to see God. You look upon Him and you see God. That's what it means that He is the image. He is the Word. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the revelation. That's who Christ is. So the Bible says, here's a promise that gets believers stirred up. It says, they will see His face. That face that we could not see. The Bible says, no man shall see His face and live in the book of Exodus. But Revelation says, they will see His face. How? How will we see the face of God? Because finally at last, when we are with Him, faith will be turned to sight and we will lay our eyes at last on Christ. What I am saying to you is, He is the face of God. He is the image of the invisible God. If we say, no, there must be more. No, there's no more. All of it is seen in Christ. I don't understand what it means when it says He is the image of the invisible God. If we say, oh, there must be more to see. 
No, we see it all in Christ. The Father, who is not the Son, who is distinct from the Son, is revealed to us through the Son. He is the face of God. So that you must see Jesus or you cannot see God. You must know Jesus or God does not know you. The great evil of Satan, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, the great evil of Satan is to blind the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Please, I earnestly plead, read your Bible so much and dig into it so deeply so that when I read these words to you from the New Testament, you can fill in the blanks even before I get to the end. Know these words so well that they are second nature. They're reflexive to you. The great evil of Satan is to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's the great evil of Satan. But the great mercy of God is that He who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. This is where I want you to be filling in the blanks. In your mind, anyway. In the face of Jesus Christ. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God gives the the light of the knowledge of His glory to our minds through Jesus that we may see Him for who He is in the face of Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. There is no more of God to see than what we see in Him. There is no more of God to have than what we have in Him. In Jesus, we have all. So, this is why image making to God is so utterly revolting. Because not only does it dishonor His Son, but it displaces His Son altogether. There's no need for the Son, who is the image of the invisible God, if images are legitimate. This is why image making is so revolting and it's why true worship is so enthralling. Because of Jesus. This is life. To know God and His Son, Jesus Christ, that's eternal life. Do you know Him? Do you, with the eyes of your hearts, the eyes of your hearts enlightened by the Spirit, do you see Him? Do you see His glory? Do you know that in the glory of Jesus is all you need? And do you know that if you have the glory of Jesus, you could not have more? Do you know that? Do you see that? Do you believe that in Him is all worth and value and preciousness and beauty and goodness? Do you know that it's in Christ? If you find in your heart blurred vision, if you can't see, if He doesn't amaze you, if you don't think that you know Him, come to Him. 
turn away from you, turn away from the world, all of the obsessions of the world, all of the pleasures and temptations turn away. And the Bible promises that Christ will not turn you away if you come to him. And once you belong to him, he will never put you out. That's the gospel, the good news. That's the glory of the Bible and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads again and our hearts to the Lord and let's pray together. Father, to know you, we must know your Son. To see you for who you are, we must see with the eyes of our hearts your Son. And I pray, Father, that you would give to us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of your Son. May all here know him. May all here honor him and love him. May all here believe in him and stake everything upon him. And I pray, Father, that this would come to pass by your great, merciful work on our behalf to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.